0: Welcome to the Macmillan Report. I'm Marilyn Wilkes, your host, and our guest is Julia Adams, Professor of Sociology and Professor of International and Area Studies at Yale University. Professor Adams teaches and conducts research in the areas of state formation, gender and family, social theory, early modern European politics, colonialism, and empire. She is currently studying large-scale forms of patriarchal politics and the historical sociology of agency relations. Today we'll talk with her about her earlier research on the familial state and her newer work on contradictions of agency in contemporary America. Welcome Professor Adams. Thank you, Marilyn. And please call me Julia. Okay. Your earlier work, the book you wrote uh, entitled The Familial State, dealt with a study of the role of elite families in large-scale political development in European countries like the Netherlands, France, and England. Can you tell us something about this role and how it mattered?
1: Uh, I can. Thank you. Uh, well, it mattered in two basic ways, um, both, of course, course, which are important to uh, to me. One is to scholarship and the other uh, is uh, to a better understanding of the world around us. Mm -hmm. Um, In scholarship, basically, for a long time, there has been a a puzzle about um, the historical rise and fall of the Netherlands. Mm -hmm. Um, And here I'm talking about what is known as the early modern period, about 15 to 1800. Um, The Netherlands was a very tiny state, very small in population. Uh, and yet it rose to a position of great world power in what you will know as the Dutch Golden Age Mm -hmm. um, in politics and economics and of course also in culture, um, in art and other affiliated activities. Uh, So the Dutch did stupendously well and that has always puzzled people because of the small comparative size of the country and its relative weakness. Um, In the 18th century things reversed quite dramatically. Um, The Netherlands declined um, and didn't, quote, unquote, come up again until the 20th century when, in fact, the country came roaring back. So that's the basic scholarly puzzle and uh, also a a broader puzzle for um, all the citizens of any nation state that are interested in why their particular country might do well well in one era and not so well in another. So uh, scholars have examined this for centuries, actually, and um, have found or have advanced many explanations. um, And quite a few of those hold at least some water, Uh, economic explanations, explanations that focus on the role of other contenders in the world system. Uh, My contribution was to highlight the role of elite families in both advancing um, the economic and political and familial fortunes Mm -hmm. of their own families, and therefore the country at large, and then in the 18th century uh, torpedoing them. And I can explain more about that if you're interested. Sure. Okay. So uh, how is it possible that a group of elite families both helped and then hurt um, the Dutch state? Well, in the earlier period, These families were many things. Um, They were uh, merchant capitalists. They were um, politicians, nascent politicians. That is, they occupied state offices and their families occupied state offices. And they were also patriarchs, concerned to advance the fortunes of their families uh, at any one time and then intergenerationally. Um, In the Golden Age, Um, This inspired them to world-beating achievements Mm -hmm. in many, many areas. Um, They became, however, increasingly invested in their hold on pieces of privilege and on the state. Um, And they had quite a wide hold or grip on um, the state, on the East and West Indies companies, um, on many aspects of Dutch life it became more and more difficult to consider giving that up. um, And those arrangements became more and more rigid and less and less suited to uh, the needs of the day. Um, That was a key to the downfall of the Dutch in the 18th century.
0: OK. Are any of these arguments relevant today? Do they apply, for example, to countries that are still ruled by families like Saudi Arabia and its 40-some ruling brothers?
1: That's a very good question. I think I think these questions are open still, and mm-hmm. many people are investigating them or thinking about them now. And so, there's no one definitive answer, of mm-hmm. course. Um, that said, I think we do underestimate the sheer numbers of countries and states um, that are still quite familial in the early modern European sense. Mm-hmm. Um, Saudi Arabia is a dramatic example, of course, but there are other countries and states. Um, that actually have family provisions written into their constitutions Um, um, and of course some even in Europe with some familial components let's think of England for example Would under some uh, situations of course um, the current Queen of England would actually have a pretty hefty constitutional role um, so we can't consign these forms of state in any easy way to the past. They are still with us today. Not so much in contemporary America, mm-hmm. but Well, elsewhere. I was going
0: to just ask you about this country. We don't really have familial states, do we? Um, families, there's a, a separation from government here, um, at least after, after the early American history.
1: Right, that is absolutely right. Uh, we do grumble, I know, about disproportionate power that some families might have mm-hmm. in parts of the United States, um, and that can certainly still be true, but these elite families do not inherit state offices. They do not buy and sell them mm-hmm. uh, any longer. Um, they have to get in them through democratic procedures, and in my opinion, that's a very good thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so in that sense, we do not. However, There are still uh, aspects of um, what we can think of as family principles, legitimating principles, that we still see intact in the United States. Such as Uh, what? Well, if you think, for example, of September 11th Mm -hmm. and the attendant national crisis, uh, an enormous national crisis, of course, and one that was um, highly mass mediated um, and therefore present in just about every household in the United States, um, there was, I think, some would argue, and and here I'm going a little bit out on a limb, but Mm -hmm. I could get your reaction to this, Um, a a kind of longing for um, a a central and reassuring figure of power, perhaps one that could be simultaneously powerful and paternal on the one hand, but also comforting on the other. And if you recall, on that day on September 11th, for quite some time, President Bush was not in evidence. He was um, not available to the media. He was, in effect, quote unquote, for a short time anyway, missing in action. Um, There was a kind of absent center in the American state, nation state, and people felt it deeply, felt a sense of emergency. Interestingly, Um, someone did step up to fill that slot in just that fashion and that was Mayor Giuliani of New York. Mm -hmm. Perhaps not a politician that we would have expected to step up at that moment. Um, Certainly his finest hour. I think both the way in which he presented himself and the way in which people responded to him were in some sense familial dynamics. but these are things we see now in the United States, typically in moments of emergency, not everyday politics.
0: Right. You continue to be fascinated by the early modern world, but your more recent work targets contemporary society and America. Um, that's quite a leap. How did you get here from there?
1: Well, that's an excellent question. Um, and w- I wonder whether I should answer it honestly
0: yes. or not.
1: <laughs> well, I think I got there through true two routes. Mm-hmm. Um, and one route really um, is a form of happenstance. That is, for many years, I've been driving on American highways mm-hmm. and noticing 1 800, how my driving stickers on the back of trucks. Mm-hmm. And I've been interested and curious to see the stickers and also to see the responses that some truckers have written on, this, on these uh, stickers, which I can't really mention on a family program mm-hmm. like yours. Um, then in recent years, I noticed this kind of address to a fictional eye in the workplace, mm-hmm. spreading to other places as well. The big box stores especially, where workers will wear a button or sometimes even a uniform that says, how am I serving you? Uh, so, I became interested in this fictive eye, how it operates, whether it actually does entrain disciplinary relationships, how the workers feel about it, how it affects customers' relations, um, and why it is spreading so rapidly through many parts of the American economy and polity. Okay. Um, now, the name or one name for this sort of phenomenon which sounds a bit technical, is agency relations. Mm -hmm. Um, Agency in both senses that we use in everyday life, both agency in terms of how people act, in terms of themselves as an I, and also agents as those to whom we delegate. Uh, Think of, for example, the real estate agents. These are contradictory senses of agency, but they're both present there in everyday life. Um, why increasingly are those who are, uh, to whom we are delegating certain tasks and interacting with in that same way um, called by uh, the I, for example, in, uh, in American life? What's at stake here? Uh, what's the effect? Um, so I became interested in this direction. Um, it also rose out of my previous work um, in investigating early modern European states, I've always been interested in these states and their colonial offshoots, the Dutch East uh, and West Indies companies, Mm -hmm. and their French and English and Iberian counterparts. I studied the impact of those companies in Europe and on the colonies, but I also got interested in their organization and their internal plumbing, if you will, Mm -hmm. their agency relations. Um, What are the relations of delegation between the people in the bosses' headquarters and those on the ground. Mm -hmm. And I found that things were very messy indeed, far messier than I had ever thought when I began my research. Okay,
0: let's talk about that a little bit. That sounds very interesting. Mm -hmm. What have you found and how did you actually go about finding it out? How did you do your methodology your research?
1: For the earlier work. Mm -hmm. The earlier work I did sort of extensive archival research in multiple countries, mm-hmm. especially focusing for that's part of the work on the East Indies companies. Okay. And when I began the research, I think I expected to find um, the command structure to be much more seamless than it was. I expected orders to be obeyed,
0: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> carried out, and reported back. Instead, what I found was quite the opposite. So by the end of my research in all these countries, the puzzle rather became how on earth do any of these companies last for longer than a week, Mm -hmm. much less 200 years.
0: And how about today? Did you find pretty much the same situation?
1: More so, even more so, as you might imagine. Uh, Now in a period where the American government consists of over 89,000 separate miniature sovereign units certainly not related in any clear hierarchical way. Now, in a period where we've moved from Hobbes's Leviathan to Google for government, Mm -hmm. the relationship between those who give orders or those who um, ask for representation and those who execute or represent is muddled Mm -hmm. and becoming ever more so. So that's what I'm investigating.
0: <clears throat> okay, so this is a new book you're working on and it includes empirical research on agency relations in America. So what are the big problems you have identified and how are you going to tackle them in your research?
1: Well, That's a very, very good question. And since I'm in a very early stage of the research, mm-hmm. I can answer it somewhat speculatively. Okay. Um, I can say that I'm concentrating on several regions or areas of American life. One is work, as I mentioned with my example of the truckers and the clerks.
0: Yes, Uh, I am very, because I've seen those signs as well, and I often wonder, do people even bother to call in? Have you found uh, that that is the case? People do call in, and do they say good things or predominantly bad things?
1: Excellent question. They do, and they say both. Okay. (laughs) Uh, And with consequences for the workers involved. Really? Yes. they're actually it's comparable in some ways to making a citizen's arrest Mm -hmm. so there actually are consequences of these uh, call them disciplinary mechanisms Okay. Um, in the narrow sense of course for the worker and those matter a lot but there are also consequences for me and you that is um, the consumer or those who participate by calling in we might feel empowered but we also might feel that we are engaged in somewhat inauthentic relations. What do
0: you mean by inauthentic?
1: Well, we're not engaging with the eye of the worker. We're being invited to comment on that person's performance by that person itself, Mm -hmm. him or herself. But actually, of course, we are being invited by the company. Right. Um, And our evaluations are in turn being evaluated by a set of companies to which that company delegates its work. Okay call centers, for example, across the United States, in India, and elsewhere. Um, The pattern of both discipline and accountability is ever more diffuse. And I'm sure that you, at least sometime in your life, have tried calling the 1-800 number. And And,
0: um, it's always quite the experience. It's always quite the experience. Typically not a good one.
1: And typically not a good one. So I actually think that it matters that many people, like you and me, are having not a good experience Uh, and what kind of experience is this is one thing I want to to investigate Mm -hmm. so this is one area there are more serious you could say areas of of problems in agency relations Mm -hmm. and delegations in America today Um, for example um, militarily increasingly vesting more and more of our uh, military force in security companies Mm -hmm. um, abroad in Iraq and in Afghanistan um, and at home.
0: So it strikes me that to do your current book, you're going to have to do a vast amount of research, very much unlike the the written chronicles you could access in your earlier book. How how are you going to do the research?
1: That's a very good question, Marilyn, (laughs) Um, because this is a fundamentally different kind of project. Mm It's one that identifies different areas of transformation of agency and action in contemporary America, almost in the forms of symptoms of an underlying syndrome. Mm-hmm. So where am I going to diagnose those symptoms, and how I'm going to do? How am I going to do it? Well, I'm going to focus on several areas, or I am focusing on several areas. One is work, as I mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, and let me say that this is already itself quite extensive. Um, I'm in part interested, as well, in uh, the new forms of American jobs Mm -hmm. that are arising uh, at the nexus of these confusing and and vexed relations. Think, for example, of the job of patient representative in the hospital. Mm -hmm. For whom does the patient representative really work? Well, it's not at all clear. They work for the hospital, for the family, the patient, sometimes for insurance companies, Mm -hmm. sometimes for doctors, and sometimes for themselves. And that just scratches the surface of the complexity. Uh, So there are jobs and employment relations like this that are burgeoning at all sorts of areas of the American workplace, Mm -hmm. and I would like to help people understand those better Mm -hmm. as well. That's so that's
0: work. Okay, but in order hmm. to get at, at that, would you, interv- would you interview people? Would it be like personal, anecdotal kind of stories that you would work or uh, use or uh, in addition to something else?
1: Yes, there, okay. there, there are a uh, number of methods that okay. you can use, and the methods will definitely vary across sure. this text. So they will include interviews, mm-hmm. also ethnography uh, slash Um, participant observation. Um, Also document Mm -hmm. archival research. Uh, And um, all of those I have to mesh in one form or another. And the same is true also for the part of the work that will focus on polity and political representation. And finally, uh, another part, which I haven't mentioned yet, Mm -hmm. um, which I really have to introduce to save the book and the project from being impossibly depressing and dreary mm-hmm. <laughs> has to do with those forms of delegation of the self and the I through techniques, for example, that are used more for formation for, uh, for play.
0: Okay. And so
1: here I'm thinking about things like online collective video gaming, for mm-hmm. example, or even the way that you use your iPhone. Okay, Which is a way of representing your identity Mm -hmm. and in a sense sending it out electronically across certain networks to do all manner of things. I would imagine
0: Facebook would be huge.
1: Facebook would be huge. Mm-hmm. So I'm afraid I'm going to actually have to get a Facebook account, <laughs> to which I'm not looking forward. Oh, it's a
0: lot of fun. You'll enjoy it. <laughs> okay, really. it's good to know. Okay, so <laughs> what do you hope comes of your research? What impact do you hope um, it would have on the world? Well, that's a big question as
1: well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one that I think that um, all scholars should always ask themselves uh, in a way that combines, I think, both humbleness and hubris. Uh, the humbleness part is that um, one could probably only expect small effects on uh, the world, on mm-hmm. the world um, of course. Um, but certainly you hope to clarify certain things about people's lives um, that others can learn from and build on. And I hope that for my own work, of course.
0: Wonderful. Thanks so much for being here with us today and sharing Thank some you, of Marilyn. your work. <laughs> For more information about Professor Adams and her work, please visit our website at yale.edu backslash Macmillan Report. Be sure to join us again for another episode of the Macmillan Report, made possible through funding from the Whitney and Betty Macmillan Center for International and Area Studies at Yale.